Hello and welcome to Polytrope, the podcast of many twists and turns. I'm joined today by friend and fellow uh, chess fanatic, Joe Fry. Hey, Joe. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Been a longtime fan of Polytrope and uh, <laughs> I just want to say uh, ahead of time, thank you to all the people working behind the scenes to make this possible and it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for thanking them that my production team doesn't get enough credit. So it's always great. Um, and uh, before, you know, when we were warming up, uh, we mentioned this, but I'm I'm on a Zoom call with you and I, you're in like, you're not in scrubs, but you're sort of, what would you describe your attire right now? Uh, I'm in a golf shirt. <laughs> and a face also, mask. You've got a face mask and the golf yeah. shirt is like that light blue sort of scrubs color collared short sleeve shirt here you know check out my sweatpants can you see they're like uh they're blue and so i keep like i keep waiting for someone to like stop me on the street and be like hey thank you for everything you're doing because they kind of look like scrubs. <laughs> yeah it's kind of like a hybrid between sweatpants and scrubs yeah <laughs> um so there's so many things we could talk about but we really want to focus this episode on chess um, and really chess in the time of crisis. Do you, do you play chess in, in good times or do you only play chess when you're like stressed out? I think, I mean, I started playing chess when I was a kid. What is your, what's your first chess memory? I mean, I, I remember playing chess with my dad when I was in the, like, I just remember probably the, the strongest memory was that our, you know, the most important rule was if you take your hand off a piece, uh, you're not allowed to take the move back. So we would hang on to the to the piece for like a minute. And then once you take your hand off, you're like, oh, it's about to attack directly by this other piece. <laughs> Didn't see that. And then, you know, we, we weren't very good. So, you know, people would move like a pinned piece during the game. And then uh, we would notice a few moves later that, hey, <laughs> the king's under check i didn't realize that <laughs> did you did you play the rule that if you touch a piece you have to move that piece no our our rule was only once you take your hand off of it that's that's final so we were a little more lenient i think yeah well because i think i played both rules with my dad for a while and then i think i was probably like crying too much from the first rule <laughs> if you touch a piece you have to move that piece because that's like that's a pretty messed up rule because it's like as soon as you touch that piece, it's like, see ya. And then it's like, yeah. <laughs> okay, what's the best possible thing I can do with this piece I didn't want to touch? Right. Did you play in school at all? Yeah, I was in the uh, in the chess club in intermediate school. We had an intermediate school, which was fourth and fifth grade only. Um, and that was just like, I remember there was one kid who just like destroyed 800 and he just like <laughs> wrecked all the other kids. And just no one had a chance against him. We had like an after class club, you know, like those those little programs you could do after school. And this is probably like third grade. And um, we had like a Russian, I don't know if he was Russian, but I think of him as like a Russian old man. And uh, he, we did like, you know, you'd be the, like, you'd have those rollout green and white pads with like the chess pieces in like a black bag. I don't know, I really like the chess equipment. And so we would have this tournament and I made it to the finals against a kid. I'm not going to name his name, but this is like this kid is like my enemy from middle school, and he like t 
talked a lot of trash and was in a losing position and like was talking trash and basically trash talk. He like, he like put me on tilt and got in my head and I ended up losing the, the finals. Cause he like, so you're not good at chess. So yeah, go ahead, move it, move it. What are you going to do? And I was like, ah, and I, I think I, I either cried or I was just like super sad. And the Russian guy pulled me over. He's like, it's a mental game man. you got to like, you got to improve your like mental conditioning. And but that was the finals. Yeah. And I think that was probably the last time I played chess, like for 15 Like over the board. <laughs> <laughs> never played yeah. over the board after that. <laughs> what is over the board? Like with a physical board. Oh, with a physical board. Like that's like online people call it. Yeah. <laughs> um, OTB. OTB. So, um, so you and I have been playing more chess in the last, let's say like five years on, on chess.com. Um, if someone asks you, Hey, do you play chess? Like, what do you tell them? I'll say, yeah, I play chess pretty quickly. Are you, I mean, I, I would classify myself as a novice still. Like I played, you know, I played for a lot for like a couple months, five years ago. And then I took like a five year break and now I'm, now I'm back at it. The, my current stint is, you know, I don't think I've ever really studied or gotten into chess at this level before. So it's kind of a new game to me in a way, the way I'm looking at it now. Well, how are you looking at it now? Just kind of trying to learn more about it and doing puzzles and kind of seeing the the art in it. Um, which is different from how I used to just kind of you know, play against people, try not to lose a piece and not right. really talk about it after. And your, your LO rating is what? Uh, right now I'm uh, 1150, 1140. Okay. I'm oversell myself. And I think I'm, I think I'm at 1120 as of this morning. I'm on like a Oh, congrats. Oh, yeah, I've been winning so much this morning. Or actually it was yesterday morning. I played one game this morning. I've also gotten really smart where when I know that I'm like, like I just want to play chess because I'm angry and I'm like not in a good place, then I play it on two one, which is like blitz. So it just, it just like I ruin my blitz score, but then I only play that bullet. Or have I got a background? A back, bullet is a little bit bullet, than blitz. Bullet is faster than blitz. Okay, so we play blitz when we do five five or three two word blitz. Yeah. Okay, so I'll I'll do bullet when I'm like want to like just rage play. Do you, do you rage play chess? Like I want to, I want to understand like, so for me, I, I, I appreciate some art to it or whatever, but mostly chess is like a fidgeting game where it's like, if I have like two minutes, I'm like, oh, I'll, go, I'll play some chess. And then like, sometimes I have like an enlightened feeling. I'm like, Oh, I'll play chess. Cause I'm like an intellectual. But then within like two games of losing, I just get into this like rut of like, angry playing does that happen to you at all that happens to me on occasion where you know i if i go on a, a run of too many games in a row then it kind of loses its you know if you play like 10 five mind a little bit i i like to try to play you know one or two games at a time and then you know if i want to still do some chess i'll do puzzles or try to read about it or something but i think playing a, a million blitz games in a row can be stressful and can lead to that kind of uh, mentality for sure. So we're, we're near the same score, like 11, 20, 11, 50. I think, I think that's like, that's like the score. If you were to like look up what that score means, it's like, you're really bad at chess. Like you're basically like a beginner. 
Well, that's like, we're like 60th percentile on chess.com. Right, but you assume that like half the people who sign up never play one chess game. I think this is for, for, for people who have played in the past one year. Oh, okay. So we're, we're pretty, we're, I mean, the, the thing about chess is there is an incredible breadth of, of ability, you know, that the ELO ratings are like, for every 100 point difference, you have like a two and if you're 100 points higher than someone, you have a two and three chance of beating them. And the, the ratings go from zero all the way up to like almost 3000. Right. I guess like, I just, I don't feel good about our score. Like, like if this was my third month playing chess seriously, I'd probably be at an 1100, right? Like, like it, it feels, it feels like you have to factor in the fact that I've played in chess for 30 years or so. And then that 1100 becomes like, we needed an adjusted LO score that includes how long you've been playing. And I think if you take that adjusted score, I must be at the bottom 10 percentile. Yeah, that's how I feel about, about <laughs> my score. Is, uh, it's a little bit discouraging when you think about the numbers and you know how, why haven't we, you know, intelligent, successful people in other parts of our lives. And you know, why is chess such a, a hard thing for us to gain any kind of ability at? Is that what motivated you to buy a premium account and start um, like investigating the art of chess? <laughs> well, I, you know, I got, I kind of got roped into the premium account by my free trial that I started and then I uh, got addicted to the puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, chess.com is really, it's really a, an incredible app. Like, so they, let, let's give our handles out quickly so that the listeners can challenge us if they'd like to. So uh, what's your, what's your chess.com handle? Um, well, my username is, is Freiborg, F-R-E-Y-B-O-R-G. And my, uh, my name on um, chess.com is Joey Fianchetto. <laughs> I actually don't see you Fianchetto that much. No, I'm not really a big fan of Fianchetto. <laughs> There's not really many other uh, chess F words, you know. <laughs> and you're, you're, you're Nick Bishop, right? <laughs> Nick Bishop. That's cool. I should be Nick Bishop. You are Nick Bishop. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my, my username is NSBar, um, but that's cool. I, uh, I must have said that a while ago. Um, <laughs> I've been fianchettoing like a monster lately because it's just as More black, than I am. As black, it's like an easy way for me to just like do three moves in a row without thinking about it. So I like, I like any little move set where it's like, oh, I, okay, whatever, I, whatever the other person does here, my next move is like automatic because I just did. Previous. What's the third move? Move the little pawn up one. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, here we go. Ready? All right, all right. So move like F2 to F3. Yeah. Oh, no, G, sorry, G, G, G. G2 to G3, right? Pawns G, yeah. pawn G2 to G3. Then he does whatever. Then bishop to G2. Right? Bishop to G2. Yeah. Yeah. And then I always like to put a knight in front of that. So I'll put it. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, F3. Yeah. See, we're getting there, man. Like, it, that's pretty cool. One, how far away are we from being able, or how, I guess how far away are you from being able to play chess 
just verbally? Like, could you play me in chess right now? Just being like E4. There's no chance. I, I, like blindfolded chess? That's no. You know, I, you know, I played a, a blindfolded chess match once. <laughs> no. <laughs> Against who? I was, I was not blindfolded. Uh, and the other guy was. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, this was when I was at Penn. I took a, uh, for my writing requirement course, um, I took some some class and they had, the, the professor knew this friend who was a, I think the guy was actually blind. It might not have been a blindfolded thing. He was like a blind dude um, who had become a uh, chess master. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he, he played me, um, he was facing away from the, from the board. Uh, and I remember I, w- I was the guy who got picked to play against him in the class and everyone was watching. And uh, I thought I was pretty good at chess at that time in my life. And I remember my strategy was basically centered around like moving my knights as much as possible. <laughs> Cause I thought those were the hardest to remember where they are. <laughs> and I was going to just surprise attack him with my knight, <laughs> but uh, he destroyed me. <laughs> It was like, it was over in like nine moves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been, it would have been interesting if it's like, oh no, he's moving his knight too much. Like I can't, <laughs> can't keep track of it. <laughs> but yeah, but that, that kind of stuff is, is to me, that's like an impossible feat of mind is being able to play a blindfolded chess game. Um, and then you have people like, you know, like Magnus who play, blindfolded chess concurrently against 12 opponents right and, and beats them all yeah that that starts to get pretty pretty bonkers but it's i mean going back to like i i want to i want to like think with you about like how we look at ourselves in relation to chess because i think like one way to look at it is like why are we so bad at chess and especially you i think because you're like you're the sort of person who if you did like two truths and a lie about me and one of them was like i can play chess blindfolded like people who know you would probably be like, yeah, like Joe can probably like, that sounds like Joe. And yet you're like so far from that. So I think like there's part of us is like, we look at chess and it's like a humbling game and there's like so much failure on the flip side. And I'm like only starting to get there is like chess is like the biggest mirror in like how you learn. And like, at least it feels that way to me. So for example, like I get so fucking pissed off at chess and like, realize like all I want to do is win. Like I'll win. I get like so pathetic at the end and like, I'll like, I'll try like some trick move to like, like basically I'll try some desperation move that if the other player blunders, like I still have a chance at winning. Right. And it's like, at this point in the game, it's like, I'm just wasting my time. I'm wasting that other player's time. I should like start a new game. I should be reflecting on the old game, but I'm still just like obsessed with winning. I don't like losing at all. Like if I lose, I don't want to have, I don't want to look at the game. I just want to like go on and play the next game. So it's like, oh, okay, there's like this pretty big mirror here, which I don't get in other aspects of my life, which is like clearly I don't love learning as much as I might pretend to. Like, like I'm not actually that hungry to learn in chess. Like I kind of just want, I want the reward. And like, I don't have that lesson in that, that many other parts of life. But then it was like, well, if I, if I work better at chess, like I'll probably become a better learner in general. So for me, chess feels very like information rich and very, like reflective of how we learn but i'm not sure is that is that the case for you at all or is there anything there that like that resonates yeah for sure it's a very personal game um let me hold on let me pull up a i don't want to cause any dead time here on your podcast but let me pull up a quote that i saw 
from Ben Franklin. Whoa. So here it is. So Ben Franklin wrote that uh, chess is not merely an idle amusement. Several very valuable qualities of the mind, useful in the course of human life, are to be acquired and strengthened by it, hmm. so as to become habits ready on all occasions. Um, for life is a kind of chess. Um, and then he goes on to list these uh, qualities. Uh, foresight is number one. Number two is circumspection. And number three is caution. And he gives a little uh, blurb about each one. What is what is circums- circumspection mean? He, I mean, he says circumspection which surveys the whole chessboard or the scene of action mm-hmm. um, and just kind of, I guess, the ability to, to look around you and to be aware of everything that's going on around you. Right, right. And we were talking the other day, like even just like the, the cognitive acts around a move, like what, what am I threatening with this move? What am I like, right. what am I stopping from protecting that I used to protect? Like, like these, you know, we, some, some blog post that I read was talking about doing a SWOT analysis, which is like in business world, like strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Like he does like a miniature SWOT analysis on every move. Right. Uh, and it's interesting. And there's probably, I, I, I don't know if there's, do you know, like, is there, if you're a Magnus, for, oh, forget Magnus, but if you're like a grandmaster, is everyone deploying, do you think the same little cognitive tricks there where like it's sort of just standard like oh you you sort of do this checklist or do you think there's actually like quite a lot of like variety in how chess players at that level are like operating i i think probably most i think probably most people fall into um i I would say 90 percent of people if i'm i don't have any idea but i'm i'm guessing 90 percent of people probably have a standard um kind of way of looking at things and then you have these occasional geniuses like you know, Mikhail Tal or Bobby Fischer that come along and just have a totally different way of looking at things. And, and that's, and they kind of revolutionize the game for the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then there's, you know, there's probably people who think like that, who don't have some of the other abilities, so they don't make it to the top, but. And is, is Magnus one of those players? Like is Magnus a creative genius or is he sort of just like, almost the most machine-like, like how, how would you describe him compared to the I, I mean, I, I see him as more machine-like than, than some of those, you know, than the other guys I mentioned. Um, he certainly, I mean, he certainly has some, some amazing games, but I don't think that they necessarily measure up to games like, you know, Bobby Fischer, like sacking his queen and winning at age 13 against grandmasters kind of stuff. Right. And, and how have you, how how do actual machines factor into that for you? Have you looked at games from machines and can they display the kind of like revolutionizing creativity that you might ascribe to, let's say, a Bobby Fischer? I mean, they must be doing moves that no human would think about. Is there creativity to that or or not so much? Well, I think, you know, that's, that's actually an interesting thing because there's, I mean, I, I remember when I, you know, you remember for me, like Deep Blue versus Kasparov, was like that was like an important time in my childhood really you remember that because I mean, that was like that was like the end of like for me that was like a big moment in my life because that was like the time where computers were were better than the human mind for the first time right um at this thing that's you know you think about as like something that human the best at 
at least at that time, when, you know, when I was 11 years old, I was like, how could a computer be better? But um, yeah, I think, you know, the, I don't know if you can ascribe creativity to a, to a computer per se, because um, they, you know, their, their function is basically to look at all, all possibilities and just determine, you know, which one over the course of the next X moves wins material or wins the game. But um, I think, you know, if you look at games like there's there's rumors that like Fisher, uh, I don't know if you know about this, but he like he retired from chess or whatever, you know, professionally, but then he would play these secret online games. Um, and he played this series of games against a grandmaster um, online where it was like he won like eight zero and he would start some of the games off. Um, with like, he would start the, as like E4 followed by King to E2 followed by King to E3. And he would just like still crush the guy. Uh, and the, and like, if you look at those games and you run them through some of the best chess engines, like 70 to 80% of his moves were not only not the recommended best move, but they also weren't in like the top two or three moves. So he was clearly like, able to play games with the other person's mind and just kind of predict how they would respond poorly to right. un unconventional moves and then pounce on it. Um, right. Well, and so, someone was telling me, I don't think it was you, but they were talking about like puzzles. I think maybe it was my friend, Andy, like people who are creating puzzles are oftentimes like the best puzzles, really high level puzzles contain within them, like, false roads that are designed to like catch the person's eye. So it's like, oh, there's some appealing way to solve this puzzle, but actually like that is, that's wrong. And so it's, it's those sorts of like traps. Like when you're, when you're crafting a puzzle, you, the puzzle will contain, yeah. will contain traps. But if you're actually playing game live, there's probably similar sort of trap setting that a computer, I mean, there's no reason to say a computer couldn't model that. Um, right. But there, no matter no matter how it models it, it will never. It it will always be like steps behind in terms of like a human to human trap setting because human human to human they're just able to bring with them a level of like situational awareness that I, I don't think, you know, for a computer I, I guess I mean if we we're doing a thought experiment the computer would have to do like eye tracking on the opponent it would be taking like little skin galvanizers it would be like what did the person like. How did they sleep last night? Like, did I talk to them in the morning? Be like, hello, how was your evening? Like, how are you feeling? So like, it, it's possible, but it just, it, it'll always be a couple of steps behind. But, yeah. but I mean, I think it's interesting when I ask the question about creativity in the machine, it, it reminds me that like, I think we're so often with creativity, we like, we privilege creativity as this like very sacred thing. And like when, cause you know, when, when will machines be capable of creative thought is like a sort of a big, I guess, question that people are always asking in our industry but yeah i guess you have to, when it, comes to but when it comes to chess like maybe part of it of course is chess is like a game with very strict rules but like it's easy to answer if a machine can be creative in chess of course it can because it's making moves that haven't been made before and right. actually like performing in ways that influence humans so it's machines are super creative in chess it's just that if you really want to be like a creativity purist, you can say, well, yeah, but they're operating from like a well-bounded possibility space. And that's the only reason their creativity is, is um, viable. 
Yeah, I I agree. I guess I retract my I retract my prior statement that we can't ascribe creativity to machines, but I, I guess in the way you described it, it's just a different different way of being creative. Yeah. So so what has chess taught you about yourself recently in terms of like how you how you learn or how you perform in life if we're channeling Ben Franklin? I mean, I guess like, as you mentioned earlier, it's been very humbling in terms of, you know, my view of my own abilities. Um, but it's also been, I think it's been a, a good learning experience in, in, you know, going by the words of Ben Franklin. That I, I actually like in all, in all seriousness, like I actually do kind of take time to um, consider, you know, what options I have and kind of which is more valuable than the other in, in actual real life situations now um, compared to or seriously playing chess. Do you, do you think about opponents in chess much? Or are you pretty much just focused on, on yourself and what you're doing? Not only do I not think about opponents, but I, I often completely ignore what they're doing in the game and I lose so much. <laughs> like I, I, have no, I have no defensive strategy and that's something that I'm trying to work on is like paying attention to what other people are doing. Right. Well, I think, I think that's, what, that's another way that I feel like chess and life are similar, which is that chess is so high bandwidth. In other words, like it's so cognitively demanding that you drop the most basic things where it's like, uh, yeah, a lot of times in chess, like anyone could just like float over and they don't have to be a chess expert. They can be like, yeah, the other guy is trying to like move all his pieces to this part of the board and threaten that square, you know? And like, I, I could, I could walk in on somebody's game and, and perform that kind of like basic analysis. I mean, I might miss right. something, but not, I'm not saying I'd be like brilliant, but like just sort of basics of what's happening. And then if you're in the game, you might completely not be. Yeah doing that at all like you're just because because it's so demanding to think about all the ways that you know your queen is being threatened right now and where to move her to safety but also open up your own plans and it's like yeah i spend i spend really little time thinking about my opponent and then and then also like from a metacognitive perspective it's like i don't even know where the right trade-offs to make are because like maybe i'm actually thinking maybe i'm doing it right it's like yeah that's that's like an advanced level of strategy and you're doing right just make sure you don't blunder and like that's where you are right now right there's also the metacognitive questions of like developing intuitions around where one should even be focusing yeah yeah that's interesting like you sometimes you can watch a game between two grandmasters and you know you look at the moves and surprising or or particularly brilliant and you're just like but it really just comes down to, you know, if you were in that game, you would almost certainly have made a mistake at some point. And then it comes down. It's so, it's so fragile, you know, chess, when you're playing against a good opponent, if you lose, you can lose a pawn or just like two pawns and it's over. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the ways that I lose that I find most like interesting is like, from very early in the game, I just like won't have developed any kind of attack. And then like the whole game is just like a failure. Like it's just, it just has this like really smooth line of like, wow, I never, 
it's it's worse when I'm playing as white because black it's sort of like conducive to being responsive and like right. hanging in there until you find a hole and then like jumping on it. But as white, it's like wow, I like moved all my pawns and did this thing, and now like wait, nothing happened. I never threatened anybody, and then my my attack just sort of collapses. I always get like a kick out of that way of losing. Um, I wanted to ask you about two ways that you're getting better in in. I wonder about them specifically, but then I also wonder if they have applications to the other ways we learn. Like, so one is new ways of looking at the chessboard, and then the other is watching other people's games. So maybe, maybe looking at the chessboard first, like there, there are these famous studies, right? Where like chess players don't look at the chessboard the way non-chess players do. So like chess players are really easily able to reconstruct the board because they do like this chunking where like they don't look at squares, they look at sort of like quadrants of squares. Um, and similarly, they're doing things where like, if you put the pieces out in like a random order, they're actually no better than anyone else at remembering where the pieces were. The pieces have to sort of have like legal positioning. Um, so like, there's sort of just this like brain work being done, like just, just based, almost like basic perception level differences. Have you, have you changed your perception at all of the chessboard? I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I well, I, I think I have, but not in, by intention. You know, I'm now able to probably visualize three or four moves into the future when I want to. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I was not able to do or it's something that I managed to do. Um, a few months ago that I can now do in probably under a minute. But I think I would guess that change the way they view the, I think if you play enough chess, you know, if you play for years and years, then you're eventually going to be able to kind of look at the, at the pieces in a way that is just like automatic and. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's what I'm curious about is like, so there's the temp, there's like the temporal aspect that you're mentioning, which is like being able to see into the future and see into the past of chess. And that yeah. seems like that has to only come with skill, right? Like the only way you can see into the past and into the future is by playing lots of games and, you know, of course doing like maybe mental gymnastics to sort of train your mind that way. But it's like, it requires playing chess. Whereas like the perception thing, I don't know, I haven't read the literature, but like I imagine you could just train a kid to look at the chessboard differently. Like I, I am, even if they don't know how to play chess, you could be like, it's almost like a, it's almost like an optical illusion, right? Like optical illusions work because the, the image sort of tricks our brain into looking at it in a specific way that is actually not like true in some sense. Right. So like, yeah, we'll, we'll see some spiral spinning when it's actually static because the way it's arranged. And interestingly, a lot of, a lot of these things even look like chessboards. Like they have a, a checkered uh, pattern to them. And so like, even with no chess experience, like I almost wonder if, if you had a teacher, they might say something like, Hey, I know there's all these squares, but like, don't be tricked by that. Like actually look at, look at these bigger squares or these bigger chunks. And, and I wonder if that could be done almost independent of someone's ch- experience playing. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I think, uh, you know, you, you look at all these kids that get to like near grandmaster level, by the time they're teenagers and, and you know some of them are like 2400 rated when they're a teenager and then they play for 20 more years and they're 2450 
And it's just like, what, you know, what happened in those two, three years when they were learning the game where their rating just skyrocketed? Like they had, did they just learn things in a different way from other people? And, and why did it, you know, why did it stop after that? Right. But, um, uh, the other, the other thing I was curious about is like watching other games. It seems like you've been watching a lot of other games lately. And I wonder if you could speak to it because like, I don't think I'm at the level where I can learn from other games yet. Yeah. I've been watching this guy's YouTube videos. Um, a gadmater, a G A D M A T O R. Um, but he, he basically just shows famous, um, uh, games um, from grandmasters or he'll he's been showing there's a right now there's a magnus carlson hosted online tournament that's pretty big and he's been showing most of the games from that um but he basically just goes through and shows all the moves and then when there's an important move or or a move where something went wrong or where some opportunity was missed he'll kind of talk about that and show the show the move sequence and then he'll also at some point in each video he you know he say uh, on the he'll say like on the next move is where the game was won. Uh, you know, why don't you pause the video and see if you can find the move? And so it's been a pretty good. The way he sets it up makes it a pretty good learning experience, I think. So he uh, does that. I, I guess I have I've missed because I've watched a couple of his YouTube videos and he hasn't done those like pausing moments. So he uh, kind of speeds through it too fast for me, and then I'm too lazy to like pause it. But it's cool that he does those moments of like, yeah. okay, hey, like this is a moment because that that really helps me like i mean those are i guess those are just puzzles but they're they're like puzzles situated in a context that i that is helpful for me yeah um what other what other things have we not talked about chess that you feel like are important for the listeners to to know um i think about like for me i sometimes think about um the you know the dangers of of chess um like there's obviously dangers of of becoming obsessed um like with anything um and you you see a lot of these people who are like great chess players who end up having a lot of problems in their in their personal lives that's not really what i'm 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 trying to get at i'm i'm talking about like do you see any danger in um the type of self-knowledge that you would acquire from reaching your ceiling in, in chess. Like say, say you play chess seriously for a long time. And what if you're at 1150 rating 10 years from now, you know, what would you able to, would you able to handle that kind of thing? And how would you, cause it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a mirror into your mental abilities and to some extent like you or some other, related faculties that, you know, that translate to chess success. Yeah. Um, you'd have to eventually, if you, if you don't succeed, then you have to eventually concede to yourself that, you know, you're missing something that other people have. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I would say probably the first way that chess can mess with your life I have a more visceral reaction to, and we can come back to that, but just like ways that like yeah. obsession, even at the smallest level can sort of like crowd out other things. But in terms of like um, reaching my ceiling, it's interesting. Like, 
I mean, part of the thing that makes online chess interesting, right, is through this ELO or ELO rating. It's ELO. I, I didn't realize I was doing a minimal amount of research. There's a guy who's named ELO. So it sort of sounded like the thing that would be like an acronym, but there's just some Hungarian. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm Joe ELO. Uh, <laughs> but this rating that system that this guy came up with sort of assures that at any level, you'll be about 50% winning right because it's always trying to find someone at your level so like one thing that i think is interesting about chess at least as played online in this way is like you never you never get the experience that i had in third grade which was like i made it to the finals of the tournament i was almost the best kid at todd elementary school like i i almost had that moment of being really special and i at that time i didn't have like a local maximum I mean, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of like anything else. So I just, I felt like a lot was at stake. Whereas by playing chess online, I'm just thrown into the population at large. And I know that even if I was an 1800 or 2200 or whatever, I would still be like losing about half the time. And I think there's something almost kind of beautiful about that, like humbling quality. Um, because, because then unless you're a Magnus, you're not special. And I have a tremendous amount of peace being not Magnus. Like I'm not, yeah, I don't hold any delusions about that. Now, what would it look like if I like worked really hard at chess and like hit my ceiling? You know, I mean, I, mean, I, I worked really hard and maybe I get to 1600 and like, I just can't, I can't get past that. I think a couple things like, I don't, if I'm being super honest with myself, I think I do want to hold on to like exceptional ability. Like I don't want to let go of the belief that I have exceptional ability but I'm very quick to let go of like the particulars of that ability. You know what I mean? Like as long as, as long as I have something else to like wiggle into. So back, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a two, like, okay, I hit my ceiling. I'm like, okay, I'm not a 2000, but like, look at that 2000. Like that kid can't even communicate with anybody else or like, or like, oh yeah, but I have like a special way about me. I'm like a good writer though, you know? And like, I think I would just, I'd find a way to salvage my overall sense of ability um yeah. by letting go of like g or some intellectual ability and it's funny that's that's actually relevant in my work right now because we're we're doing this project that like is trying to discover the strength and the passion and the ability in every person in ways that like are missed through things like sat but at the same time like sat or an iq like those are real I mean, I'm of the belief that cognitive ability is real and there are in individual differences between cognitive ability and cognitive ability is certainly something worth calculating. Um, but it's also like a highly confronting thing and, and also highly controversial, right? Because implicit in all those conversations is that cognitive ability is somewhat fixed that like while there, there are metacognitive activities and learnings and breakthroughs that can happen, like your your iq is unlikely to change significantly over your lifespan and so you know if, if you work hard at chess and get in, get to an 1800 and don't get past it like to some extent that is a real wall yeah and that that's something that's scary to me like hitting that wall um because i think it'd be hard for for me to accept that that's a, that that's the wall for me you know even, even if it were like, well, like, is there a number in your head where you're like, well, if I could get to this, then I'd feel okay with that. I mean, whatever, probably whatever, like 95th, 98th percentile is, would be, would kind of be like, I don't know what that is, probably like 2200 or something. But, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, it's just like it's hard to know exactly what cognitive abilities chess is measuring because um, it's definitely multiple. You know, and there's like working memory and ability to to visualize. Yeah, and I think yeah. for, for someone like me, like I, I think I have like a relative aphantasia. So um, I don't think I'll ever be able to play blindfolded chess. Um, but uh, it, it would still be hard for me to accept a, you know, a low ceiling. Have we talked about aphantasia? That was a subject of a previous uh, podcast episode. Uh, I don't think we've, we've talked about it. So I also have it. Uh, so I, first of all, I didn't know what aphantasia was until like six months ago or so. And then I was like, oh yeah, like I, I definitely have that. Um, but I had never, I had never spent one second thinking about that quality of mine until I saw it written about. You have, you have like full on real aphantasia? Um, Cause for me, it's like a, it's a real problem, but it's not complete. Like I see like, I can see vague images in my head, but, um, you know, people, people in my high school and stuff will be able to draw all these crazy things from memory. And I, I'd be like, how can you possibly draw a picture of something in front of you? Yeah. So, so for, for the listeners at home who might not know what Aphantasia is, it's, um, so first of all, we should say like, I'm not sure it's a real thing still. Uh, like, I don't think we completely understand what aphantasia is or the, or the consequences of it. And it was only sort of quote unquote discovered maybe 20 years ago. And it's the lack of, I think what it's called is the lack of a visual imagination. And there's something called the VVIQ, which calls on you to sort of summon mental imagery and then self-evaluate. And through that self-evaluation, that is the way that you are or are not uh, quote unquote diagnosed with aphantasia. I mean, this is not something you'll find in like the DSM. It's not like a, Right. A, a recognized deficiency. The reason I the reason I like put all these qualifiers on it is because like so a couple of things. One is for me there's a big difference between like visual creativity. In other words, being able to like summon mental imagery. So like an example of that would be like imagine you're on a beach. So visualize the beach and the see the waves crashing on the sand and there's like a little crab crawling up like i can't i can't do any of that like i'm i have no i have no i have no like i'm like yeah yeah i'm on a beach yeah there's a crab like like i'm fine it's not a it's not a problem but it's all like zeros and ones or it's all like some another way i think about it's like newspaper clippings like collage work like i can kind of like have a crab sort of like cut out and stick that on a beach cut out and sort of do like visual collaging or construction. But what really throws me, someone's like, yeah, imagine a blue square. Now the edges of the square are rounding and it's become a circle. And I can't do like that kind of live manipulation of visuals is yeah. for me completely off, off the table. I don't have it except, and I've been on the Reddit a little bit. And so I've read about some people really never have it in dreams and also if i'm like on drugs not that i'm on drugs ever but if i were to be on drugs like i can i can have like essentially like hallucinations or like men mental like i know that i know that it's possible because like when parts of my brain shut off and i'm dreaming or i'm doing some kind of like yeah then then the mental imagery is really rich 
So, so I, I do have that quality. And I've read that some people don't even have that. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I'm able to have vivid dreams as well. I, I think that you, you're probably uh, have a little bit more severe uh, of a case than I do. Cause I, I can, I can picture a, you know, a beach. Um, but then when you start adding stuff in, like say waves are crashing, I can't visualize a video of that in my head. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think the, the point is that, I mean, I, whether this is a, a, a real thing or not, I think the point that's true is that people have different ways of constructing um, whatever their metaphor is for the real world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and I think that's part of the reason that I wonder sometimes if it's real is because like, if you get really down to the, the, the lowest low level of perception, I'm not sure if we have truly different metaphors for constructing a reality or if we have different ways of talking about how we construct reality. And that's like a high stakes difference, right? Because if there are fundamental differences in perception, like it might turn out that my building block of perception is something like the word or. Right. And, and your building block of perception is something like the image that's possible, but it actually might turn out that our building blocks are the same and our ways of communicating them to ourselves and others, that's where the difference lies. And, and the difference between those two things is whether Athanasia is a real thing or not. Because right, right. the difference is just at the explanatory level, that's interesting, but that just says, that says something about our higher level operations than our like low level perceptions. Um, but I, I think the thing that's interesting about Athanasia too is also what is our relationship with it. So on the subreddit, people are like very like, I have a disease, you know, and it's like, I like, I have this deficiency and for me it's so interesting because I never, I never thought and still don't think about my lack of visual creativity as like a problem. Like it's clearly not. And, and, and I'm also like super good with faces. Um, like I don't have any trouble with that. I think in some ways I almost sort of have like a photographic memory to compensate for a lack of visual creativity. And that would make sense, right? It's like, if you're not able to right. on the fly live manipulate images, then you better have like a huge, library of like collage stuff that you can pull from such that if someone asks you to like imagine a crab on the beach you're like okay go get that crab go get that beach stick them yeah. together um let's let's go back um as we wrap up our uh our podcast on the way that chess impacts life and and that other way which is sort of like obsession I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm obsessed with chess, but my partner who, who is, what are you doing? I don't want to <laughs> would you say that, would you say that chess is a problem in our relationship or no? Um, if I am tolerant, no. If you're tolerant, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not overall. What, what is it? What, I always say I would rather, it's nicer for you to do chess as a, escape like coping mechanism then like more destructive thing more destructive but so what you see when you see me playing chess you see me doing something that's like a coping mechanism oh yeah because you like every time i find you you're on your phone playing chess i don't think that's very like i don't know how else every time you find me i'm on my phone playing chess <laughs> I know, yeah. kind of, okay unless you're not if you're not working so what do you think i'm escaping from you uh you know what you're going through like like i don't know what just life stuff yeah <laughs> So I, I don't think that's like completely fair, but I think there's an aspect that's, that's true. Like I definitely, 
when life gets stressful, which it, it does a lot, especially the last couple of months, I do find refuge in chess. I think part of it is it's like chess becomes, chess becomes my world. And so like I have a place to project all my anxiety. So here we are in like a crisis where all of us have like low grade anxiety all the time because of the conditions that we may or may not have access to. But even if we do have access to that anxiety, it's very hard to like resolve it um, because it's like grounded in things that are not getting resolved. So in chess, I, chess quickly occupies my whole world. I think like we were talking about before about being so high bandwidth. It's like all of my mind then just gets enveloped by the chess game. And in that game, then I'm able to like get pissed off or frustrated or whatever. And so I think the, it, it is a coping mechanism in that regard. I don't think that's all chess is to me, but one of the things that chess is to me is like a refuge for like my anxiety or frustration or whatever that then can kind of get played out in that arena. It doesn't get resolved. So it would be cool if like I played a game of chess and I came back to the real world. I was like feeling good. It, <laughs> that never happens, but um, yeah. So I guess, I guess that's something that's dangerous for me. I, I'm not like obsessed with it in the way that like, champions are obsessed with it where Magnus is like, Hey, I'm actually not capable of ever not thinking about chess. I'm always thinking about chess, which is right. what he says in that documentary. That's, that's not the kind of obsession, but it, it does become like a, a haven of sorts that like I probably go to too often and is not actually, it, it's, it has no cathartic effect for me. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is dangerous in that way. And it, it is very high bandwidth. Like there's some study where, where uh, they measured how many calories chess players are burning during a chess tournament. And it was like, it was like astronomically high <laughs> from, from just like sitting there playing chess. Cause I think you're, there's, there's no other activity that I don't, that I've done where you have like sustained, like high mental stress right. and it's still a game, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I think it's good to be aware of potential dangers of obsession with any activity um, and realize that if you spend all of your time getting good at this thing, then at the end of the day, you know, you're really just good at a game. Um, but that being said, I, you know, I, I do, I do love it. And I, I think uh, it'd be a great thing to keep as a part of my life without it becoming destructive. Yeah, agreed. Um, and, and I'm glad that we have yet another entry in our like longstanding, we have like a pretty cool rivalry where like, I can almost hang with you in some games to make them almost worthwhile playing for you. So I think, I think chess, like we're a little bit closer match, but like I'm thinking about like Mario golf where you were just, you were like absurdly good at Mario golf. And I, I don't think I ever really, maybe I beat you once. I'm not sure. Like, like we would play close matched games and uh, yeah. going back to your question about like peaks, like, I mean, I felt it with you. Like I, I was, if it weren't for you, I probably would have been the best at Mario golf in like Philadelphia. But I think I just so happened to like, yeah, <laughs> play with you. I hold the, the world record for uh, the Yoshi course on Mario golf. Do you really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Minus 21. Wow. 
and and uh and even bruno who like has he's like definitely like a tier below us in terms of whatever the mario golf set of skills is he, he like hit like an albatross and he has an albatross yeah which i don't think i ever did i never had one either um yeah, yeah. going going back to what you're saying it's like it's nice to have these things in our lives but it's it's interesting because i mean you you clearly have like a split view on it on the one hand it's like it's a game. It's fun. Not don't get too hung up on it. On the other, it does have like these pretty significant stakes for you, which is like you don't want to have a ceiling. Like, um, whereas I think I think for me throughout Mario Golf and other things, like I've when we played uh, uh, what's that game, Smash Brothers. Like, like I never I never even entertained not having a ceiling or being any good at it because I was I was never I was always like second tier. Right. I think. Let me just touch on. The dangers first and then i'll go back to good things but for me like one of the other dangers is is like what if you do you know what if your peak is high and you do hit it like for me the the scariest thing about chess is that like it seems to be such an accurate when you when you do hit that peak it seems to be an accurate measure of your cognitive abilities and for me it would be really scary to hit that peak and then you know watch that elo rating as i age because then it's like a it's like the best measure of really start to deteriorate you don't you know there's you don't see any you know top tier grandmasters that are old sure it's kind of like a it's kind of like a really sensitive measure of of you know it's probably better than any head ct or mri in terms of you know when things start to diminish a little bit yeah and that that would be really hard for me is like hitting my peak and then watching it go down well why would that be so hard i mean you've already you've you've kind of already have peaked probably right cognitively so like aren't we it's hard to accept though you know? I, I mean okay and okay then throw away cognitive like certainly athletically like were our best days are behind us like does that does that bother you does that bum you out that like if you were to play soccer now like you'd probably be like sore and like pull a hamstring and like be much worse than people who are five years younger. You know, not, not necessarily. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me now, but I think if you asked me that when I was 18, I would have said that would bother me. Um, so you have a good point. Maybe it, maybe it's not something that will bother me. And, you know, if I realize it's just, but, but for me, like my, you know, my mind has always been a more personal thing. So I think it'd be harder for me except to accept that any decline in cognitive ability that's measurable. I have like a weird like fantasy. I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe this, but it's like, sometimes I think the thing, sometimes we're afraid of things and then we think that we're afraid that like something bad will happen, but we're actually afraid that something good will happen. And so like with chess or with these kinds of games, like I almost wonder if you're afraid of how good you could be. Like, I, I know that sort of doesn't, intuitively makes sense but like i think sometimes we have like potential that we like kind of unconsciously know we haven't fully tapped into and then almost we we create stories of like why we're afraid that are like almost the opposite so it's like you're you're sort of saying like oh i'm afraid i would hit this peak and then it would go down but like is it do you think it's possible that the opposite is almost true that you're afraid that you would if you like really set yourself to it, you could sort of be the, like this virtuoso and like that almost is what, what frightens you. 
Yeah, it. I mean, I think what you said resonates with with some things. It's hard for me to tap in to my own psyche to that depth. But I think that it, the fact that what you said is resonating with me means that it might be true. But um, yeah, because yeah. I don't, I don't have it with chess, but I have it maybe sometimes with. I don't know, there's certain, like writing a book or something, you know, sometimes like I, I have these like fears associated with like, oh, well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be perfect or something. And like, it's like, it's clearly that there's like, I have like some fantasies about like becoming something great and almost like know that that's possible, but like get in my own way somehow with it. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I also don't have like complete access to it, but it's, it's something. Is it like a fear? Like for me, I have this fear of, like I don't like when things are complete or or perfect, mm. you know. Because mm. I, I don't know, I don't know why I have that fear, but I, I know this is getting really abstract for a for a chess <laughs> talk. But uh, like sometimes, you know, I'll think like I don't I don't want to have like, for example, my my fiance Comey when. I met her and, and things started getting out. I was like, wow, she's like the perfect girl for me. And that, and that to me was like scary. Cause I, part of me doesn't want to have the, you know, the culmination of, of something and having it be perfect and just having, um, it just, it just feels like something ends when you, when you reach a, a peak or, um, or when you find something that's really, perfect and you don't have to look anymore you know mm. and for me that's always been a fear with not just with that but with other things is like reaching the end of something is is just a a fear whether it's a good or bad end mm. i don't know do you feel the same or um i mean i i like what you're saying is not alien to me, but I think I have like somewhat different relationship with those kinds of moments. I mean, I, I know that I, I struggled for a long time and still have like certainly like present, like a fear of like spoiling things or of like uh, kind of like a rottenness to stuff. So it's like, if you think of like a fruit that's like perfect. So there's like an apple and an apple tree and you pluck this perfect fruit and you're just like holding it in your hands, like it starts to rot. And like, that is true. Like that is, that is the experience of picking an apple from an apple tree. Like if you stood in the orchard for a few days, the apple would rot in your hands. Um, I think if I, if I think if I like monitor my relationship with that truth of things rotting, it's changed a lot. And probably like as recently as like two years ago, I would probably like hold my hands responsible for rotting the apple. Like you, Nick spoiled this perfect thing by plucking it and holding it. And it's like, I am somehow accountable for the ruining of things. At other times I've kind of questioned the perfection of anything. Like if you look at this apple closely enough, like you can find faults in it. Like nothing is perfect. And, and I think like that has been an important, 
I, I would say like the, the part where I feel the biggest difference is I'm not sure if I've ever in my life held on to perfection with like a particular belief. Like I think I've always been pretty quick to find faults. And um, that in, in some ways that's been easier for me because I, I'm, I'm let off the hook of like creating these like superior, perfect, pristine things. Like I'm, I'm quick to find the flaws and things. I think the thing that has taken me longer is like this fault finding perception is itself like questionable in a way. If, if anything has been perfect, it's been my, my belief in my perception. Like, Oh, I'm so, I'm so perceptive. I can notice the fault in anything. And then I think realizing over time, the problematic quality of that and like actually not that perception is not neutral. Like if you're looking at something suspiciously trying to find fault in it, like you always will. And that's more, that's more a product of your perception than it is a product of the thing. You know, it's like you find a fault in something. You're like, see, I knew it was fucked up. And it's like, no, actually like you're kind of the fucked up one. Yeah. But I don't know. Does that, that is that, that, that feels quite different from what you're talking about, but it, it seems like they share something of like being in relation to. Uh, yeah. There's definitely something shared there. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, um, we we went from chess to life to. Um... Let me just let me just go back to chess for for one minute. Yeah, please do. I just want to say that one one of the things that I really admire the most about chess that I think you touched on already is this, like any game where there's or anything that creates these local maxima, is really fascinating to me. Um, but like, for for example, like Smash Bros. I, I met a guy in college who, uh, during a class, when you go around the classroom and they have you say one interesting fact about yourself or whatever, this guy's fact was literally um, that he will never, ever be beaten in Super Smash Brothers for N64. <laughs> I found him after the class and I was like, hey, uh, do you want to come play? <laughs> yeah, sure. And he came over to my house this was junior year and um, we played games with, with five lives and I never lost a single life in any game that we played. Uh, and the guy was just crushed. And that, you know, that reminds me of like, you know, you were the best in your elementary school, but if you went over to East Rutherford elementary school, <laughs> be some kid that completely crushed you. And then there's some other elementary school somewhere else where that kid would get crushed. And just, there's so many different levels of ability in chess that, um it's just one of those cool games where that happens and that's i think that's pretty rare in games like those those yeah. are the best games where that happens yeah yeah for sure um well uh uh maybe what we can do um now is is we'll, we'll wrap up this episode and then let's try to play a game and i'm gonna i'm gonna try to record it and then we'll throw it up on the on the web, we're gonna blindfold chess game. No, I'm not. I'm gonna look at. I'm gonna look at the chessboard. Do you have? Do you have time to play a game? Do you want me to look at the chessboard too? Well, let's both look at the chessboard. Okay. Um, I'm gonna. Have you have you played chess.com on the web before? Yeah, I have it open right now. Actually, the analysis board. Uh, why don't you? Can you bring up chess.com? Um. You want to share my screen? Share your screen and then play like, let's just play like two local players and I'll just. 
Is that possible or does it make more sense to like just log in? Let me, uh, I don't know if I can hide the analysis here. Why don't, why don't I log in and then we'll just play a real game. All right, there we go. I hid the analysis. Okay, so we're, we're gonna play it this way. Okay. Uh, you want white or black? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot to see who's which. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. All right, I'll take white. All right, we go deep door. Oh, it doesn't flip for me? Oh.